Good morning. I'm Jim Dorn, Vice President for Academic Affairs at the Cato Institute. Welcome to Cato's 29th Annual Monetary Conference. Um, we're in a kind of different venue here today, and it seems kind of ironic to be in the National Association of Home Builders. Uh, but uh, next year, we'll be back in Cato's beautiful new auditorium. We've got a dining room there. Uh, we've got a rooftop garden. Uh, so you'll be very comfortable next year at the uh, Cato Institute. And of course, uh, we're running a capital campaign, and uh, you know we're still taking donations if you are interested in a naming opportunity. Uh, Ed Crane uh, didn't tell me to say that, but I thought I would. <laughs> uh, I'd like to thank the Cato staff, especially uh, Ronlin Teodoro, who's done uh, yeoman service uh, in helping to organize this, this event. Uh, and I wanted to also mention that the conference papers will appear in the Cato Journal, which I edit. Uh, and the last issue from last year's, uh, the last issue of the journal was from last year's conference on the uh, monetary policy and asset bubbles. Uh, and it'll be available outside. Before we start, I, I'd like to pause for a moment uh, to remember our recently deceased Chairman Bill Niskanen, who passed away October 26th, uh, and he was 78. So let's just take a, a moment to think about Bill. Bill, Bill came to Cato after leaving President Ronald Reagan's Council of Economic Advisors, and he never left. Uh, he was a giant of a man, uh, a scholar and a fine human being, and we, we certainly will miss him. Uh, There'll be a memorial service at the Cato Institute uh, on April 12th, and I hope many of you who knew Bill will be able to uh, attend that uh, service. Bill often spoke at our monetary conferences, uh, and I'm sure he's listening today. Uh, what we have witnessed over the last several years is an ever more powerful U.S. central bank. Uh, yet with all its hundreds of PhD economists, and fancy, dynamic, stochastic, general equilibrium models, no one at the Fed predicted the financial crisis. And after expanding its balance sheet by more than $2 trillion, there hasn't been any noticeable impact on the unemployment rate. Meanwhile, by artificially holding down interest rates, the Fed has mispriced credit and risk and continues to do so with its twist operation, which pegs longer-term bonds at inflated levels, and thus supports an asset bubble, exactly what the Fed said it's opposed to. From all this, one readily realizes that there are limits to monetary policy. It's not a panacea, as even Ben Bernanke admitted. Our speakers today will carefully examine alternatives to discretionary government fiat money and offer proposals for reform. No one is more aware of the dangers of fiat money than Congressman Ron Paul. Since President Nixon closed the gold window in August 1971, the U.S. and the world have been on a pure fiat money standard. Representative Paul has been highly critical of that system. <clears throat> Unlike most politicians, <clears throat> he wants to limit the size and scope of government and restore what Frederick Hayek called the Constitution of Liberty. And unlike Governor Perry, he knows which agencies he wants to close. Five, not two or three. Ron Paul believes with James Madison that, quote, and this quote is from James Madison 
from a letter he wrote in 1831, the only adequate guarantee for the uniform and stable value of a paper currency is its convertibility into specie. Uh, so Ron Paul's in good company with the chief architect of the U.S. Constitution. Congressman Paul serves on the House Financial Services Committee as chairman of the Subcommittee on Domestic Monetary Policy and on the Foreign Affairs Committee. He has served on the House Banking Committee and was a key member of the Gold Commission. Uh, he's also, as many of you know, a medical doctor. Uh, and of course, the first rule for a doctor is what? Do no harm. Uh, and he has delivered more than 4,000 babies, uh, hopefully all libertarians. Uh, <laughs> In 1984, he voluntarily relinquished, relinquished his house seat and returned to his medical practice. In 1997, he returned to Congress. Uh, he is the author of several books, including The Revolution, A Manifesto, and the Fed, a very timid title, uh, and The Case for Gold. He has received numerous awards and honors uh, in his career from organizations such as the National Taxpayers Union, Citizens Against Government Waste, and the Council for a Competitive Economy. Dr. Paul holds an MD degree from the Duke University of Medicine, and he served as a flight surgeon in the U.S. Air Force during the 1960s. It's a great pleasure and honor to welcome Dr. Paul. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jim, for that nice introduction. I'm very pleased to be here. I thank Cato uh, for the invitation. I, uh, I, I feel this is a real honor to be among many who are very well versed in this issue, so I'm very, very pleased to be here. You know, I've thought about and uh, have written about the Federal Reserve for a long time. I became fascinated with the monetary issue in the 1960s, having come across uh, uh, the Austrian economists, and especially uh, Hayek and uh, Mises. And, uh, and I was very impressed with August 15, 1971, because the predictions made in the 60s came about. Matter of fact, Henry Hazlitt made that prediction in 1944 uh, when they set up Bretton Woods. He said it wouldn't work and it would fall apart, and it did. So, so that was a strong confirmation. But even after all these years of, of studying and, and reading and trying to figure out the system, uh, I have come to a very fair and, and balanced approach uh, to the Federal Reserve. I think uh, there's no doubt that the Federal Reserve is immoral, uh, it's unconstitutional, and it's a disaster, and uh, that we don't need it. So uh, with, with that approach, I have uh, worked hard in the uh, Congress as well, being on, uh, on the financial services or the banking committee at one time, it was called. And from the very first day of being in Congress, I have always been on that committee and uh, now have the position of uh, being the committee, uh, subcommittee chairman for domestic uh, monetary policy. I've always worked on the assumption that the, uh, <clears throat> the system that, was re that replaced the Bretton Woods system in 1971 uh, would not be a good system. It would be much worse. Uh, it has uh, been rather impressive that it's lasted this long, but I think the handwriting's on the wall. I think that's what we're facing today, that the uh, dollar reserve standard, which the world has embraced for 40 years, 
has, has come to an end. I don't think there's any admission to this yet, and they believe they can patch it up, but uh, I believe it has ended and that the, uh, that the standard, the dollar reserve standard, has ushered in probably the world's biggest financial bubble uh, in, in all of history, and uh, yet they've still been able to patch it up and keep it together, but this, it seems to me like the total weight of the world financial system relies on a, a, uh, a trust, which is a false trust, from my viewpoint, in the dollar, that the dollar will be able to rescue everybody and anybody, whether it's our, our own treasury, whether it's our state uh, finances, whether it's uh, uh, our cities and towns and around the world and all the banks and all the corporations. And so far, you know, the, uh, this undertaking hasn't really destroyed the confidence in, in the dollar. Uh, I think one reason when you look at the dollar in comparison to other currencies, of course, over a period of time, the value of the dollar has gone down. But uh, there's still people buying dollars and, and loaning money uh, to us at, at very, very low rates. Um, but uh, when, you, when you think about the comparison of the currencies, you have to think about what, what's our competition. And uh, the competition is the euro and, uh, and, and some others, so they're not necessarily very, very strong themselves. But when it comes to the purchasing power, which is the ultimate test of a currency, uh, I don't think we're doing very well. Our government now admits that uh, our consumer prices are going up approximately 4%. But, uh, you know, if you use the old CPI, they're going up more like 8 or 9%. And if you compare cost of living increases for certain individuals versus others, it's much more painful. So if you're, if you're on Social Security and uh, this year they get a, a CPI increase, but a couple years they did not, their standard of living has gone down and it's been much, uh, much worse for them. Uh, so uh, if, if, they're not, if their cost of living is going down, uh, going, going up and their standard of living is going down, uh, this, is, this is a reflection of the, uh, of the value of, of the dollar. But the Federal Reserve is, is an institution that uh, was created by the Congress uh, and Congress has been totally derelict in their duties as far as oversight of the Federal Reserve. And uh, I've argued this case along with many liberal Democrats over the years. Uh, you know, back uh, there were some populists like uh, uh, Patman and Gonzalez from Texas, as well as even Henry Royce uh, uh, thought that there should be more supervision of the Federal Reserve. Their conclusions were different than mine because they, they didn't uh, particularly argue for uh, constitutional money and commodity money, that, but they argued that the uh, Congress should have more authority, that the Fed shouldn't act in secrecy, and uh, yet for 100 years, uh, they've essentially been able to act on their own. But uh, I'm convinced that uh, in these last few years, we have made tremendous progress. Essentially since uh, the collapse of the financial markets in 08, uh, we've gotten a lot more attention to the Fed. Uh, last year, uh, we had a partial audit uh, passed in the Congress. We're getting more information. Lawsuits have, have helped us get, uh, get more information. And uh, th this, to me, is, is, is very beneficial. Uh, the audit bill uh, was supported approximately a third of the Democrats, and every single Republican signed on to uh, the audit bill. So there's a little bit of effort. But on the Hill, I would, uh, I would say that there's not a whole lot of enthusiasm for what I've been talking about, and there's a lot of political grandstanding, and you get some benefits. But where, where I get more enthusiastic 
is what's happening in the country, the attention of the people, and especially the young people I talk to on the college campuses, they think this is a big issue. And, and they relate it to, uh, you know, too much spending. <clears throat> so I find this uh, very encouraging. As a matter of fact, uh, the um, first time I came across the enthusiasm on a college campus was in 07. I was speaking uh, at the University of Michigan's uh, uh, on, on, the cam on, on the college campus there right after we had a debate in Michigan on, on, uh, uh, on financial affairs in, in, in the last go-around. And it was there that some of the young students started shouting out, and the Fed, and the Fed. They pulled out Federal Reserve notes and started burning Federal Reserve notes. And I said, you know, the revolution is arriving. There's something, something very interesting going on. And we, we literally can get thousands of people out. The other day we had 3,000 people out on a college campus, and they know and understand and care about the Federal Reserve system. And I think that's what has to happen, and then uh, there will be eventually changes in, co in, in Congress. But the reason I believe that uh, there's just tremendous resistance of the special interests is uh, I call the Federal Reserve a facilitator. It, it really facilitates big government. It facilitates the desires of politicians. Uh, and there is a uh, general agree gentleman's agreement between uh, the two parties. Uh, since the two parties, there's not much difference. Uh, their rhetoric is different, and sometimes one will emphasize overseas military spending. The other one wants to emphasize endless entitlement. So they more or less have been very complimentary, and they go along with it. And uh, deficits don't matter. We have too many conservatives over the years that uh, claim they were fiscal conservatives, but then they'd also say, well, deficits really don't matter. All we have to do is tinker with the tax code. It'll generate more revenues and it'll solve all, all our problems. But deficits do matter, and they're mattering a whole lot right now because this whole idea of central banking has been the instigator, has facilitated the spending, and has papered over the debt. And this illusion and trust in paper and, and, and uh, our dollar it has been a great, a great temporary benefit to us, but on long term, it's, it's very, very detrimental. <clears throat> because the biggest thing that uh, I think we face in the world today financially is this huge debt that uh, the world is suffering from. And I, I believe debt is the big problem. Uh, and it's not a lack of revenues from the government. So if we ever got serious about this, we have to cut spending. And that's where the resistance is. I don't think there's any serious talk on the Hill. I don't think a super committee is anywhere close. I don't think any of the alternatives over there are anywhere thinking about the seriousness of this because they talk about cutting a trillion dollars. Yeah, over 10 years. The only thing that counts is next year, the next year's budget. What are you going to do? So I have a modest suggestion, uh, and my position is that uh, if we were serious about this and we were concerned and, and thought we had to do something about it, uh, the Congress should cut $1 trillion in the first year. I, I think that would be a pretty good starter and, uh, and, and, and get back to living, living within our means. But we also have to address the subject of the inflation. Uh, today, the, uh, the big talk about uh, on the campaign trail and around the country and on the Hill is the unemployment problem. People want jobs, and they say 9% unemployment, 9% unemployment. And the people feel a lot in the country feel a lot worse than 9% unemployment. That's serious. But once again, they fudge the figures. Uh, 
you know, there's no reason to fully trust everything our government tells us, especially when things are going badly, whether it's on foreign policy or monetary policy, because they use the fear tactic to frighten people into, boy, yeah, the whole world's going to collapse unless we bail out the big banks and the big corporations. Yes, uh, you know, if we don't invade Iraq, there's going to be a holocaust and they're going to attack us and, dro and drop bombs on us. And that is endless, the endless fear-mongering to scare the people in the Congress in, into spending money. Now, if you didn't have a Federal Reserve, it would come to a halt. It wouldn't happen if you weren't able to monetize debt. You weren't always to have this backstop in saying, well, if you, uh, if you haven't taxed enough uh, and uh, you can't borrow anymore, what would happen if you couldn't monetize debt? Interest rates would go up, and the Congress would say, hey, we, we have to watch it. We're taking too much out of the economy. So this has been such a grand deception. In the short run, you know, we tend to do better, uh, especially as a reserve currency. We've been able to buy goods from overseas dirt cheap and uh, have policies, whether the trade policies, regulatory policies, and tax policies. We can chase all our productive businesses overseas. So we end up with an economy that uh, isn't producing. We end up with a nation uh, deeply in debt, and uh, there's no willingness to admit the truth and decide to change things, and Congress is not in any position really to reign in the Fed. Now, some people claim well, we, we need to change the mandate of the Fed. Well, since, um, since, since I don't like the Fed, I'm not interested in worrying about what the mandate should be because they're not going to do it anyway. I mean, here, here we, their mandate is that they're supposed to have full employment. They're failing there. They're supposed to have stable prices. Uh, they're failing there. So why, why do we have any trust whatsoever in, in what they do? And uh, besides, Deep down in their hearts, really, their goal is to accomplish liquidation of debt because the debt is too big, they know that, we know that, but they're not, they don't want to default and just not be able to pay the interest rates. They're not going to do that. Governments of our size uh, and with debt of this size, the default always comes. The market is demanding a default. The market wants deflation. The market insists on that. Politicians and the Federal Reserve say, no, we have to inflate, inflate, inflate. But they do recognize that you have to liquidate the debt and, uh, of course, the malinvestment as well. But their goal is to liquidate debt with inflation. And that's not too hard to understand that if they can get uh, a 50% inflation rate in a year or two, that takes our $15 trillion debt and cuts it in half. And that is their goal. And, and they're pretty upfront about this. Uh, uh, Paul Krugman happens to be... Uh, uh, have views quite different than mine. Uh, on, on occasion now, uh, we'll mention my name in his articles, but he says Ron Paul has it absolutely wrong. He worries about inflating the money supply, increasing the money supply, as being inflationary. He says that can't happen. Not, not in a weak economy, not when you're in recession. It won't cause prices to go up. Well, it seems to me like uh, he doesn't remember much of history, even our own history, you know, of the 1970s. They, they came up and the Keynesians were dumbfounded. And they say, what's going on here? This is not supposed to happen. Oh, I guess we'll call this stagflation. Well, how about inflationary depressions? Uh, uh, that's happened quite a few times. And why he would think that it's totally immune here, I'm not, I'm not quite sure. Um, but uh, Bernanke, though, has given us a, uh, an indication of his explanation of why we have the problem. So this is the reason we shouldn't worry too much, because 
Uh, I'm very pleased that he has to hold press conferences. That means he's, he's on the defensive right now, and I'm very pleased with that. But on the last one, when, when they were pressing him a little bit about why, why aren't you having more success, in his explanation, he's been unlucky. Uh, so it's boiled down to being whether you're lucky or not. Well, I, I don't think it's bad luck. I think it's bad policy. I think he's dealing with a system that is, is not viable. All it is, it's a, it's a deception. It's, a, it's, a, it, it's sort of like a drug. You know, you get some benefits and you keep using it. You know, run up debt, run up inflation, monetize the bad, make a bigger bubble. But just like a, a drug addiction, the, the drug addict feels better when he keeps getting drugs. An alcoholic feels better. But if you don't do something about it, you kill the patient. And right now, the patient is very, very big, and that's the worldwide economy. Uh, this, this is a big issue, and uh, yet uh, I, I think they're totally in denial. Uh, they're not willing to admit the truth, and they think that they can doctor this up and manipulate, manipulate it and, and work on it. So uh, what, what, do we, uh, what should we do about all this? Uh, well, my big picture of what we should do uh, is, is bigger than just the Federal Reserve, is that we as a people ought to talk, ask the question, how, uh, what should the role of government be? Uh, and does the Constitution have any meaning? Today, on the Hill, where there's any of the three branches of government, the Constitution really is down to the point has has no meaning. So we have to decide whether the rule of law is worth something, and then we as a people have to decide what should the role of government be. Well, if we followed the Constitution, the Constitution was written to restrain the federal government. And if you wanted government, it was supposed to be more local. But there were some uh, mandates in the Constitution. Article 1, Section 8 tells us what the government is supposed to be able to do. And uh, certainly we should have a strong national defense. But it also said something very strong about the monetary issue. Only gold and silver could be legal tender. That's never been, uh, been, been repealed. There's no authority for a central bank. So just following the Constitution uh, would, would get us back uh, you know, in a much better position. But uh, the purpose of government for me is the protection of liberty. And uh, I see the Federal Reserve as uh, the facilitator in the undermining of that liberty and the enhancement uh, of big government. But the longer the bubble lasts, I think the, the worse the suffering will be. But what, what can we do? Uh, I've, I've written as far back as the Gold Commission, uh, the case for gold. But even in that, uh, that dissent, uh, I took the position that I wouldn't close the Federal Reserve down in one day. The Federal Reserve will close themselves down eventually when they destroy the money. But I don't want that to happen, either closing it down in one day or waiting for a collapse of this whole system. So my idea is, is, is a sort of a copy of what uh, Hayek had talked about. Why don't we denationalize money, legalize competition, allow free markets to work, allow free market bankings to work. Maybe we could hold uh, the feet to the fire of the bankers to not commit fraud and counterfeiting. Today, fraud and counterfeiting is accepted. We allow our government to do this, and the Congress uh, does nothing. So I think we should legalize competition in, in currencies, which means that uh, first we recognize the Constitution, we repeal the legal tent laws, but I don't think you can tax money in order to have a competing currency. So what we should do is take the taxes off, uh, uh, off silver and gold and even allow private mints to uh, issue gold. An individual not too long ago did that. He uh, issued some coinage 
And uh, he was arrested. He was charged with counterfeiting as well as uh, terrorism and uh, had all his gold and silver stolen. And it wasn't like he was doing it in secret like somebody would if he were counterfeiting. He was doing it in the wide open. Uh, in wi it was wide open, yet the government does not want competition. Uh, the, this, is, this is, to me, the most important step that we could make. I have a bill in 1098, which actually legalizes uh, uh, competition. And, uh, and we would have to address the subject of uh, fractional reserve banking. I think the fractional reserve banking and the pyramiding of debt is atrocious on what we put up with. And uh, there is a disagreement in libertarian circles exactly what you do with fractional reserve banking uh, in a free market, uh, anywhere from what Rothbard had said to others who would say, let the market decide as long as it's up front and you're not lying to people and you don't commit fraud. And, uh, but that, that is a, 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 a small argument compared to whether or not we should have competition in currencies and allow something else to circulate. Currencies circulate all the time around the world. It wouldn't be a big problem. So uh, I, uh, I believe in a short period of time, uh, we will be forced into making, making these decisions. And uh, there are others, I'm sure, thinking about it, and they would like to internationalize something different than the dollar reserve standard. They'd like to have another fiat currency and maybe a pretend uh, alliance with gold, but uh, they want to move the control into the IMF and the World Bank. I think that would be a disaster. I think what we need is just the restoration of the principles of liberty, defend our Constitution, and say free markets are more important. And the government should be there to uh, make sure that that functions and that property rights are, are protected and contract rights are protected. This monetary issue uh, would not be that major uh, if we allowed some competition to come in. Right now, though, we have a long way to go on that. But uh, I, once again, I want to thank, thank you for the invitation today and appreciate very much being here. Thank you.